Welcome to the Imagines Podcast by Prophet Adam Julius Kujo. God is raising a people for the last days, trained, equipped, and deployed with the revelation of His Word and truth to represent His life in all the nations of the world. Today's episode. Glory to God. We're excited to come your way this wonderful day. We know that God's about to do something mighty. Uh, welcome to Emergence Podcast. Um, just know that today we are answering some salient questions that is on a lot of people's minds concerning God, the church, and the service of the Lord. Uh, we pray the hand of God to give us grace to articulate properly all that God wants to do, all that God wants to say, and all that God wants to perfect in our days, even in Jesus' name. So join us for this wonderful edition of the podcast. And we know that as we go on, we'll have special sessions speaking on fights, church culture, church administration, the systems of God in regards to how the Bible describes it. And I know your life is never going to be the same again. And we'll have special guests joining us, mentors, fathers, that are going to give us wonderful experiences in regards to the service of the Lord. And I know your life will be lifted, you'll be edified, even in Jesus' name. So stay tuned as we answer some wonderful, wonderful questions um, that people have asked us. The Lord bless you. All right, so let's take the first question. The first question says, I want to understand why that in the Old Testament we see a lot of killings and it was all attributed to God. For example, in Genesis 38, verse 7 to 10, and Second Samuel chapter six verse seven. Why was the operation of God different in the Old Testament as compared to the New Testament? The Bible says God does not change. If the Bible says God does not change, meaning His action does not change, if I'm correct, there was a statement Jesus made that what I see my Father do, that also I do. And I remember that when Jesus came, He never killed anyone. So why was a lot of killings attributed to God? And also, when the disciples of Jesus were about to call down fire, the Lord Jesus rebuked them. My thought is, so was Elijah wrong when he called down fire? I guess my question is understood. Thank you. All right. So you have to, first of all, understand that um, the Old Covenant or the Old Testament Bible or the Torah or the Hebrew Bible for that matter was written, of course, in a language of Hebrew. It was not written in English. And the text that was used in the Hebrew attributed every event and every circumstance to God. Remember when God met Moses in the burning bush, he says, I'm the Lord God who created the blind man. I'm the Lord God who made the lame man. Now, if you read it in a correct, in the English, it looks as if God smote somebody with blindness before they ever came or God determined somebody should be crippled at birth. But if you check it in the, the correct tenses in the Torah, um, to, to give that statement is actually how the Torah communicates the all power of God. Okay, so the example is, um, if somebody has the power to stop something and does not stop it, it implies the person caused it. It's the same with the, the, the language or the linguistics of the the Jewish text or the Hebrew Bible. In other words, most of the verbs that are used in the Torah 
or in the Hebrew translation of the Bible, has to do with more of causative and permissive. So causative is the active action of God versus the permissive action of God. I'll give you a typical example in the text. In Genesis chapter 3, um, or Genesis 2, let me start from there. When God now puts Adam in the Garden of Eden, he told Adam not to eat of the tree that was at the center of the garden. And the day he eats it, he shall die. Now, because of how the English semantics operate, it looks as if God said, when man eats it, he will curse Adam or Adam will die. But that was not the semantics of the, the, the Lord's communication to Adam. He gave an instruction to Adam and spelled out the consequence for that disobedience. It's simply saying like a parent who says to a child, um, don't jump off the table. If you jump off the table, you'll break your leg. Now, when the child jumps off the table and breaks the leg, number one, um, it wasn't the parent who broke the leg of the child. It was the disobedience of the child that led to the activation of a law called gravity that was responsible for breaking the leg of the child. So the parent was simply informing the child of the consequences of actions. And that consequence of action is such that according to how God created the earth, laws have been put in place that God cannot override, especially in disobedience. So the moment you disobey, though God can stop that evil from happening, you have violated a principle in the spirit. So God kind of ensures that you face the consequence. It's the same with regards to Exodus chapter 12 when he told Israel to paint their doorposts with the blood and that he's going to send a destroying angel. Then he says, anyone who has no blood upon their doorposts, he didn't talk of tribe or nation because if you read Numbers 11, 4 and 5, the Bible spoke of the mixed multitude. If you check it from the translation, he speaks of other non-Jewish persons. That means the mixed multitude was not Jewish. It was a mixed contingent of Egyptians, Ethiopians, Nubians, aside the Jewish people. All right. And so by that, it implied that even Jews that had friends who were Egyptians, who gave that knowledge to them, if the Egyptians came into their house, if the, the Egyptian painted their doorposts with blood, the destroying angel will not destroy them because the instruction is when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And number two, you can also be Jewish. And once you are not in a house that has blood and you are in the street or you are in an Egyptian's home, when the destroying angel starts moving, you will still die because it's a law and God cannot violate himself. Actually, it brings my point to what you asked. God does not change in terms of the extent of his person. The extent of the, the, the dimensions of God is fixed in the regards of who he is. He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's all-seeing, okay? He's also all-present. Now, based on the extent of his capacity, he does not change. His God who does not diminish. In fact, when he said it in Malachi chapter 3, the verse number 6, he says, I am the Lord thy God. I change not because of that the sons of Israel or Jacob are not consumed. Look at what verse 7 said. He told us in what reference he does not change. He said, even from the days of your fathers, you have gone against my ordinances. That means my ordinances, my laws, my instructions are fixed. They are fixed. You can't violate them. So, 
the 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 the, the fixation or the, the 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 statutory post of God has to do with His extent, His power, His governance, His abilities, His capacities. He does not change. Now hear me well. So it's true that we see a lot of killings in the old covenant, but you see, the problem with the way we read the Bible is we read it with a humanistic approach. So we miss the writer's intent. Now, God moved men to write. That means it was not men having a cover version of who God was. It was God through men who did not know themselves necessarily, communicating his nature through the events of time. So what that meant was that every time a man wrote about God, the unfortunate circumstances sometimes was there were certain nuances that governed their description of who God was. But God does not change in who he is by his own definition. He says that your father Abraham, your father Isaac, and your father Jacob knew me as El Shaddai. But that's not my name. My name actually is Yahweh. I am. So it means that God allowed that nuance or that definition of himself permitted, but in his permission, it looked as if that was the name he chooses to be called by. But when he met Moses, he says, they called me by this, but my real name is Yahweh. I am that I am. That's what he said to Moses. So coming back to your question, if you take your time to look throughout scripture, God says something so profound. In Genesis 3.15, he says, The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Then he says, Nevertheless, the serpent shall also bite the heel of the woman, the woman's seed. So what that means is that there was enmity between the serpent then the serpents and the woman's offspring. Now, in the oppression of God, you will notice something very interesting. When God cursed or allowed the curse to proceed, when God allowed judgment to come out of him, it was in the respect of the protection of the seed of the woman. So all the killings of the Bible were under two categories of sentence. Anything that violated his government, anything that violated his purpose. So number one, a boy goes to see his father naked, mocks him and when the man wakes up he does not curse the boy how he rather curses his son canaan he said curse be canaan curse be canaan a servant of seven shall he be then we know according to the demographics of genealogy that ham was in fact his name ham means hot or from the sun so ham speaks of them that are from the hot regions or from the sunny regions that's ham for africa then we see Shem has to do with, the word Shem is the named one. The word Shem is name. So the named one has to do with the, the descendants of the Jews. Then we also have another generation called the Japheth. And Japheth are the Europeans. So you find out in this tripartite or this triplet or these this children of, of Noah that there's something very interesting about their, their, their nature. And it says Canaan, Canaan was cursed. And he will be servants to actually the, the siblings, that is Japheth and Shem. It was a curse. But if you check well also, it was Canaan that, or Ham's descendant that got mingled with the seed of the giants after the flood. So in one action, God goes ahead to curse and weaken a people 
that will have a corrupted bloodline so that by the time Israel faces the Canaanites, who Bible said when they entered into the, the, the promised land, Numbers 12, Numbers 13, Numbers 14, they saw them as giants. So it was the Canaanites that controlled the land of Jericho. When they entered, they said it was so big, it was so mighty, they could not do anything about it. That land were controlled by the Canaanites. And these Canaanites were actually the mixture of giants and the seed of man. Remember, God killed that batch with water. Now, that killing was something that we do not talk about because the Bible says the giants were eating from man to creatures to trees so that the blood of the people began to cry unto God. As scripture said it, that man now slept with angels and produced offsprings of dangerous caliber. Do not talk about that. But we forget that after the flood, another set of giants came. And the same giants were still in the same category of a mixed mutant. And God now raised Israel to kill those people. So you see the battles against the Jebusites, the Zamzumims, the Hittites. They were all mixed-blooded entities. That's why they were killed massively. The Amalekites, all of them had giant DNA. And it was a, it was a mutation of their nature. But let's come to the issue of the very scriptures you mentioned, Genesis 38 and 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, in these two scenarios, it was not necessarily, it was a mixture of the government of God and the purpose of God. The government of God had to do with Genesis 38, when the Bible says that there was a gentleman called Er, and Er was actually the son of Judah. And after Judah's son died, Judah's firstborn was supposed to marry Tamar or Tamar. And when he went to sleep with Tamar, he did not want to have a seed with Tamar. So he withdrew and he spilled his seed on the floor. And the Lord said he did something wicked in his sight and killed him because he did not want to have a child with Tamar. It happened to about two or three of the sons and they did the same thing. God slew all of them. Now the reason is because Jesus Christ was to come out of the tribe of Judah. Now, these boys were using their personal choice by an oppression that was influenced by the enemy to prevent the coming of the seed of the woman. Because it was through Tamar, if you check Matthew chapter 1, that Jesus Christ was born. So it means that anybody who refused to sleep with Tamar was preventing the coming of the Lord. So that's why God said they did something wicked. Now, so it's very important for you to also understand the words evil and wicked in the covenant terms. Wickedness. That's why I said in Daniel chapter 12, in Daniel 11, sorry, verse 31, 32, he said they do wickedly against the covenant. So how do you do wickedly against the covenant? The covenant is not an entity. The covenant is a practice. But I said in verse 32, they did wickedly against the covenant. They did wickedly against the covenant. So there's an action called, a, it's a contravention, it's a detour from the purposes of God that God calls wickedness. So wickedness is not killing somebody, it's the end product of wickedness. But the first action of detouring from the will and purpose of God is what Bible calls wickedness. That's why Bible even calls a group of people who act against the knowledge of God, iniquity. It's a get thee behind me, ye that worked iniquity. So iniquity is not first essence, it is a work that is contrary to the purpose of God. That's what evil also said. Beware of evil workers. He didn't say evil doers. There's evil workers. So there's something called evil work. And even Bible says the days are evil. How can the day be evil? 
What did the day do to become evil? Yet in Genesis chapter chapter 2, the verse 3, the day was holy. So a day can be holy, the day can be evil. evil. So there's a holy day and there's an evil day. He said, remember thy creator, Exodus chapter 12, before the evil day comes. So the day is evil. Why is the day evil? It's because of what it stands for. It's contrary to what God intended to see. So you have to understand the energies and the interpretations of how the words were used so you can have a proper picture of who God is. Lest God will look inconsistent like you are asking. That how come in the new covenant it seems as if God is doing something different from what he was doing in the old? Well, I've explained to you. Number two, in the case of Uzzah, Uzzah's name means man's strength. And Uzzah went to try to support the Ark of the Covenant because he had become so conversant with it, he did not do it according to the duo. He thought he could assist God. And that was the striking of God. Now, so all those things were contraventions of laws and purposes of God, for which reason that action was released. In the days of dealing with the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Baal were Jews who had decided to worship a foreign god. And God categorically said it in Exodus chapter 20 when he gave the commandments, thou shalt have no other god besides me. So that action required instant death so that a prophet pulled out a sword and killed 400 men. Then every soldier that was connected to that agenda was subject to the judgment of God. So check it. There was another set of soldiers that came even to the prophet Elijah. But they didn't die by fire. Because when he came, he said, I'm a servant of God. Listen to the language of the soldier. He said, I'm a servant of the Lord. So please do not harm me. So these other ones that were burnt came because they were servicing Jezebel and the Ashtoreth God. That is why when fire came, it located them. But in the days of Jesus Christ, I like how you said it, that it seems as if in Jesus' days, Jesus went differently. He said in John 1, I have come. In, in when Jesus Christ came in John 10, he says, verse 10, he says, the, key, the thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy, but I have come that he may have life and have it more abundantly. He said the law was given through Moses. In, in John chapter 10, verse 10. But in John chapter 1, he said the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So when the Lord came, he brought grace and truth. So at the appearing of the Lord, the Lord said, It has been written in your law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I did not come to condemn the law. I came to fill it to the full. So when he filled the law to the full, he said, A new commandment I give you. A new commandment I give you. And if you even check in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, chapter, chapter 7, chapter 8, it speaks about because the law could not do anything better, but in bringing a better hope it did. Then he says, if the law, if the priest has been changed, then there's need that the law also is changed. And Jesus came as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the Lord changed in his days. So the Lord is the same God on the throne. But the reason why it looks as if the actions of God are changing or looks different is because he has clauses in his operation. Number one, he speaks of that he may be able to prove that which is the good, acceptable and perfect will of God. That means that even in one will of God, there are three operations of it. And according to the clause you use, you can activate any clause by which God will deal with you. That's how it works. In the clauses of the justice of God, he said, in thy wrath, remember mercy. That means that you can be under sentence of death, but the moment you shout for mercy, God, by legal operation, suspends your judgment. 
God will watch you and say, your sins have called up for me. But if there is a man who stands in the gap, that's what Job said in Job 9.33. I sought for a days man who will stand between God and myself. He said, he will lay his hand on both of us. He said, if the person was found, then I would have not gone through what I went through. That's what he said. He said, I wouldn't have gone through the things I went. But if I found a days man, an intercessor, I wouldn't go through what I go through. No wonder the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 30, he said, God sought for a man who will stand in the gap. So in other words, the judgment of God is coming. But if there's no man to stand in the gap, nothing stops his judgment. Yet, if the judgment is coming and someone stands in the gap, it will seem as if God has changed his mind. But the changing of his mind is still part of who he is. It's not that he is not, he's confused about who he is. So it's like in court, I did a little bit of, of law. And in law, there's a statement that is made that says that the law is an ass. It is used or it is beneficial to him that writes it well. That means that you can have the law in your hands. But if you don't know how to interpret the law or use it to your advantage, you can know the constitution of Ghana. But if you don't know how to interpret the constitution, you will lose your case. So that's what I'm trying to say. God does not change. His word does not change. His ordinance don't change. But there are so many phrases and clauses in it. The soul that sins must die. But if the soul that sins finds an, an intermediary, a mediator, an advocate, one who can die on his behalf, then he doesn't need to die again. That's how it works. That's why it seems as if Moses was able to convince God in Exodus 33 about his actions against the nation. But it was not Moses convincing God. Moses was just quoting God's law back to him. And the Bible said, God repented at the saying of Moses. So it's very important to understand those dealings of God. And once you understand the dealings of God, it changes your experience of God entirely. Amen. I pray that that answered your question. I pray that that helped in a certain way. Um, praise God. This question says, who is a spiritual father or mother? And do you choose your spiritual father or does he choose you? How do I find a spiritual father, especially in a campus setting? Wonderful question. Such interesting question. Well, this has to do with the pastoral indicators of um, how we are made, how we are raised in the body of Christ. Um, Paul made a statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, that for though you have 10,000 instructors, you have few fathers. For in Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Now, what Paul was trying to communicate was the word instructors in the Greek is the word pedagogos or nannies or babysitters. So Paul was saying that, you know, sometimes in our Christian journey, there's a very interesting interplay of our experience in regards to the whole concept of spiritual father, spiritual mother. Now, that concept has ever since been in regards to the operations of the destiny of life. I'll give you a typical example. The world calls it mentors. Um, those in the uh, very strict fraternities call it godfathers. You know, some call it sponsors. You know, some in Eastern religion call it gurus. So you have to understand that the journey of life is such that it's always the, the, the gathering of information of a prior generation that is able to assist you to the living of the next generation. So even in spiritual matters also, of all things, a spiritual guide, a spiritual mother or father, whatever term you use, but a spiritual guide is necessary for you to navigate properly the 
events of life. Now, that, that events of life is such that you will notice that even through scripture, um, in the days of the apostles with Jesus Christ, it was disciple-master relationship. Now, the reason it was called disciple-master relationship was because they were taken from the rabbinic operation of tutelage. You know, a, a student who passes uh, the Beth Midrash is now enrolled into something called the Beth Talmudin. And in the Beth Talmudin, that was a school of discipleship. And that was for 15 years. So a person follows their master for 15 years. And in following the master for 15 years, what happens is that the student learns the manner of life, the way the man eats, the way the man comports himself, his even dressing pattern and his, his fundamental interpretation of the Torah. And that's how it was up till now. I know some Jewish rabbis, or I know some rabbis, I know the rabbis or the rabbinic system still operates in the Jewish community where a young boy has a mentor, a teacher who teaches him how to interpret the Torah because the revelation of scripture, the revelation of the spirit realm is very vast. In the demonic realm, we have we call them the initiators. You need somebody to initiate you into a realm. You need somebody to initiate you into witchcraft. You need somebody to initiate you into the occult. You need an initiator. So if somebody needs demonic powers, demonic capacity, there's somebody who does the reinforcement for them. Nobody is able to traverse or transact business with a, if a deity without a medium. There's always an initiator in the matter. So even when you go to the shore, you go and call a spirit and the spirit shows form. Your technological in advancement in that realm requires a senior person, an initiator. Even the demons will give you somebody to, to match you through the journeys of the spirit world so that you're able to properly harness the powers of that realm. So when we talk about spiritual mother, spiritual father, actually it is a term Paul used. Paul never called Silas, Apollos, um, Epaphras, you know, Timothy. He never called them disciples. He called them sons. He called them sons. He said, Timothy is my son. He called them sons. So the spiritual fatherhood thing we talk about is not an egregious system where a person wants to control somebody. No, it's been abused. True. Of all things that we have in this life, the fake things are always the misconceptions of the truth. But the truth is, there's always that setup. In fact, the Bible in Genesis chapter 45, the Bible speaks of how even Joseph said to his own father, Jacob, that God has made me a father to Pharaoh. Can you imagine? Jacob was informed that Joseph is the father of Pharaoh. I'm the God has made me father to Pharaoh. God made him father to Pharaoh. And I know a lot of us go into the scripture in Matthew that says that, you know, you are not supposed to call any man father. But Jesus even many times said, your father Abraham saw my days. Jesus even said Abraham was their father. And they came to him in Matthew 12 and said, who is my father, who is my mother? So it, it, was, it was a contextual misrepresentation of scripture when people say, giving Jesus said nobody should call father. No, there, there are dimensions to the communications of God. And it must always be, uh, you know, divulged in the context by which it was used. So importantly, you must understand that spiritual mother, spiritual father is not a construct of control. It's actually a system of growth. And there are people God brings your way who show you their scars, who show you their victories, who show you their pain, who show you their experience, who tell you things that you, you are to do to able to succeed in life. In the American system for installing presidents, you will notice that every president is a student of a previous president. Except for, of course, 45. 45 didn't have anyone that he understood it. But everybody literally had somebody that they understood it. So that by the time they get into office, they know how to navigate their presidency. Very important. It's a simple principle of life or living. So it's as natural as life comes with it. So 
When we talk about spiritual father, spiritual mother, well, it's a term people use, you know, but it's actually a certain operation of guidance, a certain operation of, of proximity. It's not, it's not mentorship. You see, mentorship is a little bit from the world. It's a term borrowed from the world. It's not mentorship. It's fatherhood. But that fatherhood is supply, source, sustenance, and coaching. Supply, source, sustenance, and coaching. Clearly in scripture, I give you a typical example. In the days of Samuel the prophet, you know, if God didn't believe in this system, in the days of Samuel the prophet, God wouldn't have come all the way down to tell Samuel or call Samuel's name. Then Samuel, God, Samuel saw, God saw Samuel going to Eli and God could have stopped him on the way, but God used the voice of Eli three times. So Samuel thought it was Eli calling him till Eli said, Speak thy master, thy servant, hear it. Before the Lord even continues speaking. Because even God understands authority. He understands the transmission of the guidance of people he puts in our life. Remember, Elijah had a servant. Remember, Gehazi was cursed by Elisha. And God didn't stop it because Gehazi had authority based on the connection he had. The same way God said, go and find Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and anoint him in your stead. But the anointing was not the end. He had to serve before he could receive the mantle. So, and, and people came and said, your master. But if you check it in the text, that master had to do somebody who had proximate training connection to the, to the prophet. Remember, there were other students called the sons of the prophets who were in school. So if they were sons of the prophet and the one who was closest to Elijah, who was he? He called them the sons of the prophets. And that's what the Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 4 that there was a widow who came and who was part of the school of the sons of the prophets. He called them sons of the prophets. And that's an old covenant terminology. So if they were calling themselves sons of the prophets, then who were they actually in reference in regards to? Who was the prophet in regards to them? And that's what the Bible says. In 2 Kings chapter 4, when the, the widow came and says, my husband was part of the company of the prophets, who are serving you in 2 Kings 4. You know, so very important that you understand that, that, that context or terminology of, of oppression. Very important. Very, very important. And he calls them sons of the prophets. So that means that even the word sonship, sons of the prophet means they were of the prophets. That means the prophets were the fathers of the sons. So it's a, con it's a context that has been used from the very old. So God has not come in the internet and said, don't call anybody father. No, there was a context to which that terminology was used. Jesus even said, who is my father? Who is my mother? And his parents and his siblings were asking. He said, he that doeth the will of him that sent me. So there was context to which he said that. He was not denying the motherhood of Mary. Neither was he denying his brothers. No, but he was speaking in context. Why do I say all of I'm, all I'm saying? I'm saying again that that context has been used for control rather than for education and for guidance. So, please, a spiritual man, a spiritual father is kind of a spiritual guide, a spiritual instructor, mentor, teacher, coach. The difference between a mentor is somebody you do not know, but you learn from. So, they can be teaching you from screens, from books, from distance. But a coach is, is, is hands-on, is practically in your life. A, a coach knows you, knows, and that's where fatherhood comes in. Because, you see, you cannot be a father to a person you don't know exists. Okay, so when we say fatherhood, there is proximity. There is proximity. And in the new covenant, they didn't call themselves disciples. They called them fathers. They called them fathers. They called them sons. That's why that's why it's mentioned. And Paul said, Timotheus, my son, I begot you in the gospel. He called Timotheus, my son, clearly, in the book of Timothy. Timotheus, my son, clearly. 
So there was no missing of words when it came to the context of fatherhood and sonship. Okay, so it's anybody God gives to. But like, let me repeat it this way. It's, it's, it's Jeremiah 3.15 says, I, the Lord, will give you pastors after my own heart. I give. God gives you those people. You don't choose them. God gives to you. Number two, these people don't come after you. All right? Uh, uh, um, even biologically, a father does not introduce himself to a child. It's strangers who do that. So, if I'm even coming to preach in my church, my, my pastors don't need to say, uh, let's welcome our daddy. No, no. I'm, that's my family. I don't need to be introduced to my own family. They know me. And that's what John 10 says. My sheep know my voice. And when they hear, they are aware. They can follow. They are drawn out. So I don't need to be introduced to my sons. So every time somebody is to find a father, you are not. In, he doesn't introduce himself to you. So somebody doesn't call you and say, you are my daughter, you are my son. No, there's, there's a little bit of control in that. But when it's from the spirit, you... There's a, there's a revelation in your spirit. Now, I'll show you something very interesting in John, 1 John chapter 2, you know, verse 14. Very interesting scripture. We, we, we of course, um, um, I, I just want to use it in the text, the, how the text used it originally. He says, I write unto you fathers. Now, let me go to verse 13. He says, I write unto you fathers because you have known him that's from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children because you have known the father. Now, the word little children here, very interestingly, um, communicates a group of children that are not newly born. Now, there are, there are, there are about seven stages of growth in, in the Greek language for children. Okay, The height is sons, heels, and heels are akin to pater, fathers. But the firstborn, First Peter 2 says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of Christ or God, that he may be, of the word, sorry, that he may be able to grow thereby. First Peter 2, 2. So in that scripture, the word as newborn babes, the word newborn babes is breathfuls, newly born, freshly born. The one that came from the womb is breathfuls. Then from breathfuls, this child moves into something called the technon. And technon is what John 1, 12 calls. He says, as many as believed to them, gave it power to become children of God. So the word is children, technon. But from technon, they graduate into another dimension. And that dimension, in fact, is before technon is nepios. Okay. Nepios is unable to talk. So from brefos, you go to nepios. A new child that is not consistent with speech or is making sounds rather than speech. Then from nepios, you go to technon, which is John 1, 12, I said. You know, Paul says, as when I was a child, I did childish things. That's nepios. Then when you come to um, the next translation of the matter, from technon, you move to something called piadon or pidon. Okay. And that pidon is where you get the word pediatrics. So it's not even the newborn. A newborn believer does not even understand what father is all about. That's why newborns are always going to, dis um, um, they are always going to display a kind of um, severance at some point. Because when they were born, many of the people they were born to can either be fathers or nannies. But the distinction between nannies and fatherhood is not the prerogative of the betha. The betha is the Lord, but the Lord puts them in your care. So if the Lord puts a child in my care and says, uh, probably these newly born are in your care, I'm a nanny at the time. But when the child is growing, if it is in accordance to the purpose of God, at the time where the child has come to Pidon, the Bible uses the word Pidon, little children, 
they are pediatrics. They are they have come to a certain goal. They are no more toddlers. They are they are infants graduating into you know that stage where you can send them. They can come. They can obey instructions. That's why I say, little children, you have known the father. I mean, it is at Python stage you get to know fathers. At newborn, they don't know who a father is. It's you are, you are just oh, oh. yeah. So as a newborn babe, you might not know a father. You might be in Sunday school. You might be in your youth church. You are happy, but as you grow in God, according to God's purpose, there will be a revelation that will dawn on you. You will start knowing who you resonate with in terms of the assignment God has given you. That's why many times you see you have a Sunday school teacher, a youth pastor who raises you, then God leads you to somebody to go and submit. And that's where your ministry or your assignment is hewned according to the purpose and the patterns of God. So when you're on campus, I will not say on campus setting, whatever it is. On campus, of course, you are, you are probably with nannies. You are probably with people who are taking care of you as caretakers. Sometimes when the ministry grows and you finish school, by revelation, God will speak. I, listen, I was born again by my parents. About 26 years ago plus, I, I was led to Jesus Christ by my parents. And when they led me to Jesus Christ, they were the ones helping me study the word. Then they put me into the care of a man who taught me the word of God, Mr. Siam. And he was my youth teacher, you know, Bible quizzes, ensuring that I'm studying the word. But so they were just enforcing the disciplines of the ministry I was in at the time. Then when I came out, I went to university. I mean, all those things, I was just doing the same disciplines I was taught. Then I met a man and the Lord, I just felt a spiritual, I don't know why I was connected to the person. And this is about, this is about, I could say about, about, about 10 years after I was born again. So 10 years after I was born again, I started having a connection with a certain man. And then I, in prayer, I said, Lord, why am I having this connection? Then I heard God say clearly, why am I having this? He said, clearly, rise up, go down, go and submit to my servant, Jidobiwata, for he is the one to father you. And that happened 16 years ago. So everything I know, every knowledge I have from childhood, there was a hewning towards that journey. I didn't, I didn't start out. So you find out that sometimes in the body of Christ, some people start out at age two, age three in the Lord, and quickly somebody's trying to father them. And then when they come to maturity, they go like, no, this is not what I'm, not, I'm supposed to be. I, I was being nannied for a moment. Then it becomes crisis. It becomes crisis. So I, I say this is all humility and from the biblical standpoint of the explanation, even babes in Christ might not know their spiritual parents. And my parents, can I tell you something, have been ministers of the gospel for 40 years plus. Yes, they've been Christians 40, 45, 50 years plus in the ministry and, and serving God. But the point is, God said, they, they were caretakers. You had, there was somebody had prepared for you to help your ministry. And it was clear. So I believe that if you're on campus, it should still be revelation. I know, yes, you call some people presidents and vice presidents, your papas, your leaders. Give them the honor they have due them. But after you're done with school, if it's not a revelation, don't join. Because I'm telling you something, if it is not done by revelation, there will be an off in your spirit and you will feel like you don't belong and you will be contemplating and you don't know how to go about it. So I always tell young people like, listen, don't use words carelessly. Have revelation behind. Any young man that comes to me and says, God said I should be or this thing. I ask them that, what did God say? What is the basis for why you are saying what you're saying? If it's after a powerful preaching, then you are following your flesh. If it's the way the man is, I think I can be. No, that's your flesh. It's, it's revelation because Jesus, according to Jeremiah 3.15, says, I give you pastors. God gives us pastors. That means in the spirit, there's a book of pastors. 
and everybody who must be pastored by a certain person is written by God. And that's why it comes by revelation. So even if a man tells you, I am to father you, you must also have witness in your spirit to agree to that. But if there's no witness to that, I, I mean, you'll find that a lot of times. I had that a lot of times as, young, as a young man of God, but I knew that this is not it. And it saved me a lot of trouble. Praise God. I believe you were blessed by this episode. Please find the full message on YouTube at Ephesus Gathering. You can also find Prophet Adam on Instagram at Official Prophet Adam. Please note that it's a verified account. The Lord bless you.